coming to you from the many worlds of the multiverse. It's the podcast that's never the same twice. And always two things at once. It's a little bit perfect, but it's a little bit still too opaque. Wanna try it? This is Burning Man Live. Welcome back to another adorable episode of Burning Man Live. I'm Andy Grace. And I'm Stuart Mangrum. Um, Wow, what a strange, strange week this is, Andy. It's been surreal in so many directions. I mean, first of all, this is supposed to be strike week. Right, right. Where would you be now in a normal year? What would you be doing? It's Thursday. Hopefully I would have pulled the laundry out of the car by now after passing through Reno and sleeping for about 24 hours in my own bed. What about you? The same. I'd probably be already doing endless loads of laundry, freaking out my dry cleaner by bringing her a dusty tuxedo (laughs) and going through gallons of vinegar, trying to clear the undercarriage of the truck from all that playa crud. But instead, I'm sitting here with all these wildfires I'm sure a lot of people, especially in the U.S., saw pictures being posted from the West Coast. It felt like the surface of Mars. I was in Blade Runner meets Dune, and my dog was so confused, she wouldn't even go outside. Yeah, one of my friends said it was like the apocalypse directed by Villeneuve, who did Blade Runner 2049. Yeah, and it's, it's, you know, worrying about all your friends, and I know people who've already lost their properties, and everybody's got surrounded by fires in all directions. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's really scary times and it's good to be able to connect with each other as we have. And here we are today to do a show. It'd be good to talk about something other than the apocalypse, maybe something, I don't know, festive. Festive. I like that idea. That's perfect. And our guest today is, his name is Eamon Armstrong. He's the host of the Life is a Festival podcast, and he's had a whole bunch of burners on his show, including in the, his latest episode is with our CEO, Marion Goodell. Wait a minute. Did you say festival? Life is are, a you festival. Saying, are you saying that Burning Man is a festival now? Because that word has, has some baggage with it. Well, funny thing is that Eamon and Marion did talk about that, and we can talk about that here a little bit more if you want. I'd like to talk some more about that, because I mean, festival... I mean, you look at it etymologically, it's just a happy word, right? It's based on feasting or being festive or having a good time. But there's a big difference between our medieval notion of a festival or a potlatch festival and like, say, I don't know, lobster fest at, uh, at Red Lobster, <laughs> right? And a lot of them do seem to be, that word seems to imply some sort of passive consumer experience to celebrate some kind of buying of something, an entertainment experience, plate of you know frozen lobster tails. Right. In the contemporary sense, that's absolutely true, but it does have a long history. So, All right. Well, we'll talk about that with Eamon, but first, wait a minute. Let's have a brief word from our sponsor. Have you ever looked around yourself at Burning Man and thought, where did all these soft burgeons come from? Ever realized you hadn't left camp at all except to use the portas in more than 48 hours? Is your idea of a good night on the playa standing around a burn barrel with a bottle of bourbon and bitching about everything that's wrong with Burning Man today? then you might be a jaded burner. And my friend, this is your lucky day. I'm Dr. Yes, and several years ago, I realized that while many people call Black Rock City home, there's a need for a different kind of home, for those who believe Burning Man was better at some point in the distant past. 
This is a crowd that's jaded, crusty, and ill-tempered, but on the plus side, they can usually tell you several ways in which you can fuck off, Sparkle Pony. Being a longtime Burning Man entrepreneur, I knew an opportunity when I saw one. I am, therefore, absolutely thrilled to present my latest endeavor, Dr. Yes's Forever Home for Jaded Burners. Our motto is, it's gonna suck, and we stand by that every day. Located in the Hualapai Playa, just over the hills from the Black Rock Playa, and with a capacity of 120 residents housed in secondhand yurts complete with fraying tape, we provide the very finest in the ideal jaded burner experience. I want you to shut your eyes and picture this. No running water. Deeply mediocre food served cold straight out of the cans from the secondhand bin at the Walmart in Fernley. The residents service the portas themselves. Radical self-reliance. No lag screws. Rebar only. Damn kids don't know how good they have it today. Daily bitch and drink sessions around the fire at 11.30 p.m. Tell your neighbor how they could be doing it better. Bad vibes only. Complimentary dusting of the inside of your yurt twice daily at 5 a.m. and 6.30 a.m. with gas-powered leaf blowers. Only newbie assholes light themselves up at night, so obviously dark wadding is the done thing. Nobody will ever say namaste to you. There's an old TV playing Fonzie jumping over a shark on water skis on continual loop. Anyone who tells a daft punk joke gets immediately jumped and beaten. And finally, if it's ever been played at Robot Heart, it'll never be played here. Your life at the home will be full of bitterness and ennui, just the way you like it. And between getting blackout drunk, not so quietly judging everyone around you, and loudly proclaiming it was better a decade ago, you're certain to feel like a winner. So come on down to Dr. Yes's forever home for jaded burners. Hell yeah! Now that's festive. Yeah, does my yurt come with a bullhorn, or do I have to provide my own? Oh, everybody else just gets one, not you. This is the tenth circle of hell. <laughs> our right. guest, let's talk to our guest. How All right, about let's our do that. Is Eamon Armstrong, host of Life is a Festival? Hello, Eamon. Hello. Tell us how you introduce yourself. I introduce myself as Eamon. I've I've never actually had a playa name. When I first went to Burning Man, I met someone at a casino in Reno, and he was like, "I will give you a playa name." And he held my head and I'd never met him and it was very invasive. And he said, you are Zap. And I was like, I don't think I want to go to Burning Man anymore. <laughs> I don't want to be Zap. I introduced myself as Eamon, depending on the context, sometimes as the host of Life is a Festival and sometimes as the host of the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast, but mainly just Eamon. I was the Prince of Parties for a little while, but I thankfully grew out of it. I think you made a wise choice declining Zap. Zap. People talk about all these rules for playa names. I say there are only two. Somebody has to call you it and you have to answer to it. And as long as you don't answer to it, it's not a playa name. Zap. I wish I'd known that rule. This is the first time I'm hearing of this rule. I think I've violated this rule with other people too, where I've christened them with playa names that they definitely did not want. Okay, Zap. Uh-huh. So life is a festival. Let's start there. Tell us about the background of the name and the journey that brought you to that concept and the title. So I actually wasn't really into festivals per se. Burning Man was my first experience of what was then festival culture for me. So I've always thought of Burning Man as a festival. I'm sure we'll talk about this. So I was Burning Man first. And then I worked for the Burning Man special events team and got good at doing social media. So I got hired by a guy named Chip Conley, who many of you know and love to work on a website called Fest 300, 
which was a guide to the world's best festivals. And in my role as a community builder for Fest 300, I got to meet all of these amazing people around the world that were involved in festival culture. And I also got to have these really beautiful experiences of personal growth and watch them occurring around me. But what was difficult is this kind of like integration afterwards as you go and have this incredible experience and then you go back to your life and you go back in your box. So after Fest 300 ended and I did a little traveling, I wanted to start something new that was just for me. And I thought, what a wonderful thing to just talk to all the fabulous people that I've met about how to make your life like a festival, how to take all of these peak experiences and silly moments and communal effort and building things together and to seed that into your life. And so Life is a Festival is about making your life like a festival. And it's actually evolved. It's actually, even now, it's even less about making your life like a festival as such. Now it's more like how to be with the entire world as if it's a festival so that when things are more difficult, you can realize that you're part of a participant in some glorious spectacle. So it's gotten a little bit of like a stoic philosophy piece that sort of wandered in. So what exactly is a festival then? Mm, I should have like something in the can for this and I don't. As you can probably tell, I'm, I'm woefully ill-prepared for both this interview and literally my whole life. A festival is an environment of communal celebration. There's a sociologist called Emile Durkheim who talked about this idea of collective effervescence. This is one of Chip's things that he loves, so I'm stealing it from Chip. Collective effervescence is this experience of bubbling up together, where we sort of have a cathartic experience together. And I feel like a festival is a celebratory container that creates the conditions of collective effervescence. There are a lot of people using that term that I can't think it's anything like that. I mean, is Glastonbury create a collective effervescence or is it really just a couple hundred thousand people watching a spectacle on a stage? Interesting you would choose Glastonbury. I think Glastonbury is absolutely an environment of collective effervescence and an environment of participation. Part of the thing about life as a festival and talking about Burning Man as a festival is not so much, I'm not afraid that the consumer music festivals are going to dilute the glory of participatory culture. I actually feel like by being, by considering Burning Man a festival, and it leads towards more participatory culture for other environments that already have the foundation for it. So like Coachella is different than Lightning in a Bottle. Lightning in a Bottle is still a, you know, you pay for your ticket, you buy food. It's not a burn, but it sits a little bit closer to Burning Man. And it wouldn't without Burning Man. And when people get up in arms about, oh, friends don't let friends call Burning Man a festival, I feel like there's an abdication of the leadership opportunity of moving all of these kind of celebratory gatherings closer and closer to participation, because I think that's what we all really want anyway. And of course, y'all know, this is the whole Burning Man thing. When you build it yourself, the party is much better, the experience is much better, and it actually ends up being kind of a, a teaching experience more than just an experience of spectation, spectation, spectating and consuming. So I feel like Burning Man is a festival, it's also a festival in the vibe of like cultural festivals like Kumbh Mela in India. It's, uh, it, it is a festival and 
I would like to see the sort of modern music festival growing more towards the direction of Burning Man, particularly through boutique kind of community thrown events, like little smaller kind of festivals that are being thrown in kind of a Burning Man ethos. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Lightning in a Bottle because they are referred to in several other events, kind of sort of more like Burning Man than like Glastonbury, refer to themselves as transformational or transformative festivals. Is that a real, is that a category? Is that an industry category? Is that a thing? And what does transformation really look like? Oh, gosh, the whole transformational festival thing. Yeah, so I like calling Burning Man a festival, but I hate the term transformational festival because transformational festival is a super proscriptive term. It's like if you didn't transform, you didn't do it right. right. And, and the sort of transformational festival vibe is like, okay, we're going here to transform. And I think that if you go to a place with the intention to transform, then you're limiting your ability to actually have a transformative experience because your idea of what transformation is, is already kind of locked in your mind. If I go to Burning Man to have like a shamanic, psychedelic transformation, then I might totally miss the shenanigans and, and punk prank culture that actually may change my life for the better by disrupting my self-seriousness. But if I'm, it's transformational, I'm going to transform, I've got my owl feathers, I'm all in linen, I'm ready for my transformation, then you're actually kind of doing the same thing that you would do anyway, and not really like letting in the kind of coyote trickster energy that actually is truly transformational. The kind of transformational festival moniker is not really apt. And I think it's also kind of passe. I mean, not that there are festivals anymore which is sad, but I think it's seen as a bit of a passe term, although we don't really have a good term for that kind of hybrid burn music festival that they kind of sit in. Right. So don't be a transformational festival, but festivals and that kind of experience can be transformational. You're right, Stuart. Transformation is a very big word. (laughs) Yeah. It's another one of those like festival or events that's kind of, (laughs) it could go in a lot of different directions. I'm really curious about the the mechanics, about the science of of transformation, because there is some emergent science around that. There's some interesting work coming out of Yale, a person named Molly Crockett and a guy named Daniel Yudkin have been doing a multi-year study of people at multiple T-word festivals, Burning Man, Lightning in a Bottle, a few others, and actually tracking changes in their behavior. And the most interesting one that they've actually put some some numbers on is uh, generosity, that people do come away from some of these events more generous than they showed up. Measured, you know, not just in in surveys, but actually in some experimentation. One example of that is what they call the dictator experiment, where they give you 10 gifts and say, you can keep them all or you can give them all away and it's up to you. And measuring the number that people give away rather than keep for themselves before and after is, I don't know. I think there is there is something there. We tend to shy away from talking about it because... As you said, it does make it sound like, wow, it's like another thing on my punch list. I got to have my transformative experience. I'm, I'm ready for my transformative moment, Mr. DeMille. But I think there might be something there. People do change and people self-describe all the time as like Burning Man changed my life. Well, and you need to be available for multiple kinds of transformation because right. you can kind of get in a spiritual cul-de-sac of transformation. Transformation can really devolve into navel-gazing, particularly if you're going from one peak experience to another. So you go do your ayahuasca ceremony, 
and you have this great experience and you feel so good. You feel good, maybe not during, but certainly afterwards. And so, well, what do I want to do? I want to go have another ayahuasca experience. And you can get caught in that. You can get caught in trying to leap from peak to peak. The actual evolution, the evolution that I talk about on my podcast is party, heal, serve. You come for the party and then you're like, oh, why does my life not outside of the party? Why does it suck? Oh, there's stuff in me that, that needs to be like moved and processed and felt. I need to like break out of some of these boxes. And then you do that for a while, but you can get caught there just like, oh, now I'm having another transformation. Oh, it's, uh, now I'm like my golden archangel self or whatever sort of like mythology you want to paint on top of that. But once you get into actual service with it, integrating it into your life and building practices that help you kind of maintain it, you start moving from healing yourself, transforming yourself to actually being like, okay, well, I need to really transform the society. I need to actually bring this into the world. And that's part of why I started camping at Burners Without Borders, because I'd done enough of this conscious entrepreneur theme camp, you know, where it's like we get up and we talk about our medicine work and we talk about these things. But I felt like Burners Without Borders was then taking it to the next step. What does it mean to actually give this away outside of our culture and outside of our comfort zone? The point of it all is that if you're too preoccupied with the idea of transformation, it'll have the opposite effect. You'll just kind of be in, in a loop of self-aggrandizement. Or if you think it's a single event, you know, that blinding flash of Satori rather than the start of a journey, right? Mm, yeah, that's a great point. You know, you can go there seeking evolution and be open to that, but I, it would be fascinating to understand the conditions under which permission to to seek that evolution without chasing that evolution have to exist because there is a difference between a music festival and the kind of place where that happens. And if you try to bring it into a music festival space, I've tried to just give buttons away. And people are like, what, what? Why would I receive this? You're not building community if they're not going to close the electrical circuit and receive the gift. You're just some weirdo that's trying to hand them something they don't want. Well, I think that's why the decommodification piece is part of what's so powerful in Burning Man, because I can't remember who the, I think his name's Weber, maybe, uh, the philosopher who talks about I-it relationships versus I-thou relationships. I wish I could reference exactly his name. But when we're going through the world and we're constantly toggling between I-it transactional relationships, like I'm at the convenience store, I want my gum, you are the gum dispenser. And then I'm toggling between that and like, you're my friend, I'm trying to have a deep experience with, we're kind of constantly opening and closing our interpersonal membrane. And I think at Burning Man, that membrane just keeps getting more and more open. So you're on Playa and someone gives you something and you're not like, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry, I don't want to donate to your church or whatever it is. You're like, oh, this is for me. It's this opening of the membrane that I think is probably part of what makes the space so unique. Yeah, decommodification definitely does. I think that is its most salient effect, is that people don't distrust each other's motives. You know, in, in ordinary circumstances, when we tend to just treat strangers as economic actors and expect them to be selling us something and any gift, you know, expect something in return for it, uh, those expectations kind of drop away, right? And I wonder what that's going to be like now that we're not sitting in space with one another and having these in-person experiences. It makes me wonder all the festivals that you've been to and the, the things that you must listen to, Eamon, 
where are you finding inspiration now that we're all kind of living the opposite of the experience of a festival and we can't be face-to-face to build those relationships? Are you hearing anything good? What's inspiring you? I really like a yin-yang kind of perspective on things, that there is yin and yang, and there's yang within yin and yin within yang. For those of us who are not on the front lines, and a lot of people are, if you're not an essential worker, also if you're not like trying to manage like a crazy family, for those of us privileged enough to have this experience be a slowdown, it's actually a really profound experience to slow down. Life as a festival isn't like, let's celebrate all the time. It's like, let's meet life in this open-hearted way that we would meet an interactive art piece at a festival. And sometimes it's time for the man to burn and to go crazy and to hoo-ha and do your thing. And sometimes it's time for the temple to burn and it's time for you to get really quiet and introspective and let that happen. And I feel like we are very much in a temple burn season of the world in this moment. You'd mentioned before we had this conversation that you might want to ask me about kind of the future of festivals. I'm not really thinking about the future of festivals that much right now because I'm embracing my yin, feeling a lot of gratitude, looking for places where I can serve and help out, but also just like what happens when there's no FOMO because there's nothing to be afraid of missing out. If you're not like, oh, I'm going to go here, I'm going to meet this person, what happens inside you? And it's a little bit like what I love about yin yoga Have y'all done some yin yoga before? No, sir. What happens is you're in this yin position where everything slows down and then yang stuff inside you starts coming up and it's hard. Everything's quiet. Nothing is happening but gravity. You're not efforting in any way. And yet within you, these things that have kind of like sat where you've held them start to peek up and be like, hey, you're in pain, by the way. Are you ready to feel that? I think for those of us privileged enough not to be fighting this disease as a medical worker, we actually have the privilege of getting some of that yang stuckness out of us in this time, just accepting that it's not festival time now. It's time for something different. Your work around masculinity, going back to change and personal evolution, because You've mentioned that, especially at the 2010 event, Burning Man event, you had experiences that led you to start thinking about masculinity in our society and yourself. And I wonder if you would tell us a bit about that and how that evolved. Oh, man. Oh, man. So Burning Man taught me that I could be feminine without being gay. When I was a little boy, so I was born in 1982, before I knew what sex was, being gay was the thing you didn't want to be. That meant to be excluded. And to be gay meant to be feminine in, in any way. Pre-sexual, like, I, I don't know what, what gay would mean, but it just means to be feminine. And so I've had this really major wound because I, I'm like a multicolored bird with complex energies and aspects. And I like to sing and wear bright colors. And it wasn't until I went to Burning Man and I was watching these like, super cool dudes gallivanting along the playa with like gowns and brunch lady hats. And I was like, I can be that? And it didn't seem to be the kind of binary of mainstream gay culture, which to me had felt like such a caricature. And it didn't seem like swishy or sissy or these things. I don't feel that gayness is that, but it's in my system being called those names as a little boy. I was called Flame and Amen, which hurt me so much. Now that I go to Burning Man, it's like, that's actually like a pretty cool name, Flame and Amen, considering, you know, but Flame and Amen was just like, no, like I'm not that. I'm not that. 
And so much in me was like, how much am I not that? Part of what I do in men's work is to talk about this idea of the exiled feminine. And men's work is not universal. Masculinity is not universal. Our healing around our masculinity is not universal. None of this is universal. But for some men, for myself included, there was a process of trying to remove from myself everything that was feminine. And the homecoming of all of those likes and, and energies and feelings and wants, I call this the return of the exiled feminine. And it's a reintegration and wholeness. And Burning Man was the playground for me to first see it and then experiment with it. I love Tutu Tuesday, for example. Tutu Tuesday is such a beautiful gift to cisgender men because it's just tutus. Everybody's doing it. And then you can try it on and you're like, okay, well, well what about, you know, what if, what if I kind of like have a little like wiggle in my tutu? Like it sort of starts to build on itself. I've dressed as a grandma at Burning Man. I've dressed as a girl bunny at Burning Man. Like I've done a lot. Of, and I don't even think of it as like drag. It's kind of like avatarism accessing these aspects of myself by playing into these different beings that I get to inhabit out there. And it's such a beautiful playground for that. Yeah, Burning Man has absolutely brought all of this work in masculinity up for me. It's one of the things that I'm most grateful for. Putting on a dress, more like cosplay than drag show, you're right. One of the things I missed in this year of quarantine was uh, Brides of March. Oh, yeah, Stephen Raspa's into that. Yeah. <laughs> But in, in that men's work and finding the feminine, you know, is it possible to go too far the other side and start hating the masculine elements in yourself? Funny you should say that. So that's the thing. I've noticed this with any kind of personal growth is you're always overcorrecting and there's the righteousness of the recent apostate too. So you're like, well, now I am a champion against toxic masculinity and I see it everywhere I look. And then I fell under this. Like I, when I first started giving talks on masculinity, it was all about how to dismantle toxic masculinity. And I was preaching about toxic masculinity from the righteousness of my newly acquired integrated feminine. And the reality is, is that we're all such complex creatures. There's so many wounds that we have and nobody, nobody needs the same thing. So there may be a young man who was raised in such a way that there are aspects of his masculinity that he learned to hate. And for him, this connecting with the feminine isn't actually what he needs most. So it's totally possible to go in the opposite direction. And actually, that was part of what brought the spark to something called the mythopoetic men's movement. Have you heard of this, the mythopoetic men's movement? Is that like Robert Bly? Absolutely. That is indeed Robert Bly. But basically what they found is that there was like the sort of patriarchal, what we call toxic masculinity, the kind of Don Draper vibe. And then there was second wave feminism. And then there was a masculine response to second wave feminism, where these poets who started the mythopoetic men's movement found that a lot of men had kind of lost their connection to a kind of deeper masculinity. The way that I think about that is the problem of masculinity being oppositionally constructed at all, that it's like, okay, I'm a man because I'm not a woman, so I'm going to force out all the feminine. And now I'm a good man, so I'm not a bad man. And to be a good man means to force out all the masculine. What the mythopoetic men's movement did is it looked back to myths and, and stories as ways of finding archetypes to explore and align with. So from their perspective, the idea of being a man, especially maturing into an adult man with a mature masculine psychology, wasn't about what am I not? What do I define myself by the negation of? But actually, what about the king? What does it feel like to be the king? 
what about the magician? What does it feel like to be the magician? These archetypes are, they're presented as, as masculine archetypes, but they're also non-exclusive. It's not that a woman can't connect to her magician archetype. So it's far more inclusive and far more personal in one's own relation to mythology and, and ancient stories rather than, okay, I need to be a man. I'm going to have to turn in my man card if I don't you know, do the following things that require me to, to negate something else. I didn't know we'd do masculinity this much. It's kind of nice. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Yeah, you know, there are other archetypes besides the warrior and Don Draper, right? You know, the, the father and the, the caretaker image of masculinity. The archetypes are loose-fitting. They're like energies and ideas that you can align with as they serve you. It's not like a man is a caregiver. So I'm a man and I'm a caregiver. It's like I'm a being in a male body and I can play with different archetypes. Like, I love the coyote archetype. Like, that's like, I'm gonna play with that a little bit. I'm gonna see how that like widens my width of being. And it kind of brings us back to the issue with transformation is our egos are so interested in staying the same. And so we get in like a groove where maybe we've swapped out mainstream culture for a kind of conchy, like transformational culture, but then we're getting in that groove and we wanna stay in it. And I think that the archetypes are good. And trickster energy generally is good because it kind of upends that and says, okay, well, what would I be if I were this? How could I experience and connect with the world if I stepped into a lion or an owl or, or whatever it is? But that fundamentally, I'm, I'm simply an infinite being in a human body. I don't even know what the infinite being I actually am is because otherwise I wouldn't be able to be in a human body. But everything that I do that broadens the width of that, that turns my boundaries into horizons, creates a kind of expansiveness that makes life better and allows my leaves to turn towards the light. And that's kind of like my guiding North Star is how can my leaves turn towards the light? So is transformational experience, is part of that the, the unlearning of maybe things that you were forced to do or questioning decisions that were made for you and figuring out your own path? Yeah, absolutely. I, that's part of why I'm so interested in psychedelics and psychedelics for healing. Modern science is pretty much at a place of that a big part of what psychedelics do is reduce the kind of holding of what's called the default mode network. It's a pretty common parlance now to talk about the default mode network. But essentially, the default mode network is sort of the regions of your brain forming a network of what your brain does habitually at rest, which turns out is think about yourself. And a lot of ailments like OCD, depression, a lot of these are connected to your default mode being one that's rather negative and rather self-centered. And psychedelics across the board, certainly with the fMRI studies of LSD at Imperial College London, but I know there have been other psychedelics studied in this way since then, have shown to reduce activity in that network and create the possibility for activity between regions that don't usually form networks. And so... When you say unlearning, what am I unlearning? Well, I'm unlearning that I need to be famous to be loved. I don't know why I learned that, but I learned it, and then I was desperately clawing for fame. And now I'm not famous, but people know about me, and they like my work, and I feel good. And so I've kind of unlearned a desperation for fame. And not that that doesn't come back, but yeah, I think it's absolutely an unlearning, a releasing, and an opening for the marvelous serendipity of life. And that was probably a process and not a singular moment where you woke up the next day and said, I don't have to be famous. 
it was something that happened incrementally, right? Of course. And it's asymptotically incremental. It's always going, but it's sort of like a curve that's going towards a line that never quite gets there. I don't think that there is an arrival. I think that the idea of arrival is an ego thing. If I just do this, if I just have one more ayahuasca ceremony, if I just do like a Vipassana every year, I'll, I'll finally arrive. I think it's more asymptotic where it's sort of like, I'm getting closer and closer is better. And I'm also just kind of like dancing my way through this mystery of life. You've got your podcast, The Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. You probably just touched on some of this, but what's most exciting for you as far as what you're learning there as you unpack that world and dive deeper into it? Well, The Psychedelic Therapy Podcast is great because it's part of a job, um, which I'm very excited that I have a job that pays me money to talk about psychedelics. That is super cool. So it's community building for a psychedelic software startup that's building software for psychedelic therapists. And my job is to be friends with everybody, which was kind of my job at Fest 300 too. And it's a really cool job. And a good way of being friends with everybody is to interview them and learn about them. And when you do an interview with someone and you're well-prepared and you show up, I just did an interview with a Diné woman. Diné is the proper name for Navajo. Her name is Belinda Aracho. And we did an interview about considerations for psychedelic practitioners when dealing with native population. I did a lot of research and I was really prepared and she still blew my mind and I still like learned so much, but we're like homies now. And it's not a one-way thing where like the company that I work for wants to look good. And so that's why we're doing it. It's also like now we have a relationship. And so now when I'm curious as to whether we're getting something right, when we're honoring indigenous lineages, I actually have someone who's willing to talk to me about it and who's already, we've built this connection. And I know what she's trying to do with her career and her work. And she's amplifying her work in terms of her speaking, her conferences. So her being on my podcast was of service to her. And so we're doing this relationship building thing. And I love it. It's so nice. I really, really, really like podcasting. And the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast has a much more limited scope than Life is a Festival, because Life is a Festival is kind of the Amen show. You know, I don't talk about myself a lot because that's pretty annoying. Um, I hope it's not annoying right now. <laughs> but when you're hosting and you talk about yourself, but it's still kind of like my journey. The Psychedelic Therapy Podcast, this is for psychedelic therapists and healers. And I'm interviewing people who, you know, I interviewed a woman of Haitian descent who had just started. And she's bringing all of these beautiful, like, ancestor altar energy into her work. Now, some someone in Boulder, Colorado, who is, you know, wanting to do ketamine infusion therapy, and who actually is like more of a clinician, more on the research side, well, they can then listen to this podcast and listen to this, this incredible woman, her name's Flory St. Amy, can listen to how she's leaned into her lineage to bring, she brings her ancestors into her treatment with her. So she builds an altar and she feels very supported by her ancestors. And she also invites her client's ancestors into the room. Now, if you're a medical researcher who's focusing on ketamine treatment for depression, that may be a little much for you, perhaps. But it also might st strike something like, okay, well, are my ancestors part of this? Is that something that I could even sort of imagine in my treatments? And so what I'm trying to build with this work is just the best way that people are using psychedelics to heal others. And then to share that through the community 
It's like medical contraindications, super important. How to build your business, super important. How to do, you know, how not to be a shaman, super, super important. <laughs> yeah, I'm having a lot of fun with it. And I'm, it's a job. They're actually paying me to do it. I say they, my incredible colleagues. Yeah, I'm feeling really grateful to be doing that. And it was built on Life as a Festival, which was built on Fest 300, which was built on volunteering for the Burning Man Special Events Team. So there you go. Looking back through your back catalog of Life of a Festival episodes, I'm seeing a whole lot of burner folks that I recognize. Uh, Marion Goodell, we mentioned, Christopher Breedlove, Zach Cervello, Caveat. I haven't listened to the Caveat show. What did you guys talk about? Oh, man. The Caveat show, actually. So I read his book, The Scene That Built Cities. I've really loved his work for a while because I'll be reading something from the Burning Man Journal and I'll be like, ooh, damn, that's poetic and precise. Oh, it's Caveat. Duh. <laughs> of course it's Caveat. Reliably like, um, so. Yeah, right? His article is Burning Man for White People was part of how like, I then wrote about Africa Burn. He j he's just stimulated a lot of things for me. So it was really exciting to interview him. We talked about a lot of things, but primarily the collision between Burning Man prank culture and Shanti transformational culture. And it actually like brought me, because when I first went to Burning Man, it was silly play. We built a grandma's house art car and we would dress as grandmothers and we'd scold people and then forgive them and then have a dance party. Those were my roots. And then in my own reckless self-improvement, I got very, and this is kind of what I'm decrying in this interview is the kind of myopic focus on personal growth. So we were talking about this beautiful collision between these two cultures at Burning Man and how, in a sense, they kind of like check each other. Yeah. And he sang at the end of it. He sang a, a sea shanty in my house very loudly. And it was, um, I had to like turn down the mic. I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Whoa, cowboy. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's brilliant. And his, the, the poetic way with which he describes this culture is something that I really admire. As a podcaster, this is my question. How do you know, because you're, you're having these rangy philosophical conversations, What's your process? Do you spend a lot of time talking to the people beforehand? Because you've reached out to some people that you didn't know. And why do you have reason to think it's going to go well? What's your process? Are you asking because you are looking for your own tips? Are you looking, you looking for guests? <laughs> I'm curious. I'm curious because you have this array of people and, uh, and it's not just let's talk about this festival and now let's talk about that festival. You really dive into... Uh, a lot of the things that we're talking about here. So I'm just curious about that process. Well, first of all, part of the challenge with life as a festival is that I don't want anyone to think it's a podcast about festivals because that'd be boring. You know, actually, that reminds me of what, um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on his name. The, the, the beautiful proprietor of the front porch art car, Zach Carroll. Zach. Zach once told me early in my career, never write about a festival. This is back when I was writing. Never write about a festival because it's boring. You have to write about the human experience in the context of a festival. Because a festival is to be experienced, not to be written about. But the human experience is to be written about. And that really stuck with me. And all of my early articles were very much like personal journeys and awareness and learning about culture through festivals. So Life as a Festival is about life. And it's really my journey too. 
I did a podcast with Jamie Wheel, who did a wonderful job of criticizing this sort of like, I think I'm in the Grail Castle learning the greatest thing, but actually I'm in Hotel California in the kind of like conscious communities where it's, you know, yeah, he's got great poetry too. And I asked him, okay, well, if I really want transformation, what should I do? And he said, go do a 10-day wilderness first responder training offered by Knowles. Not only will you be a better person afterwards, but you will be a more useful person, which is a much better kind of transformation than simply spending 10 days in silence or 10 days in the jungle. Now, that's a bit hyperbolic because 10 days in silence will make you more useful. It'll make you probably a little more quiet, which can be more useful. But then on the podcast, I said, yes, I will go do this. So I went and I did the Knowles course. And then, of course, in the Knowles course, I then wanted to interview my instructor. So a big part of the podcast for me is kind of like going with what feels like the next thing for me. One thing is that I don't, it's really hard for me when people ask to be on the show. It's a weird thing. It's just hard because I don't want to say no, but the answer is almost always no, because I don't really choose that way. For me, it's like, what's the next thing I want to learn? What's the next way that I want to expand? And so someone will reach out to me and be like, I really want to be on the podcast to talk about marijuana. And I'm like, well, I don't care about that. Like, it's nice, but I don't, you know, and I, it's hard for me to respond because I don't want to be a jerk. And I don't want to act like my podcast is somehow some precious thing that they're excluded from because that's horrible. So the responding to that is hard. But for me, it's very much like, what is the next thing that I want to learn? Where are my blind spots? And does that intersect with the culture that I'm serving? So I did a podcast called Grandmother Give Me Patience, where I interviewed a woman named Jyoti Ma, who is the convener of the 13 indigenous grandmothers. She is not an indigenous woman herself, but she has convened them. And her dear sister, Loretta, afraid of Bear Cook. And I was just like, I want to speak to these women. And it was so funny because I showed up with all of my chutzpah and linear thinking, and I wanted to extract my perfect podcast from these these wise grandmothers, and they just would not have it. And they did the podcast exactly the way that they wanted to do. And at the end of it, I was like, but there's so much we didn't talk about. Like, I wanted to talk about this really big deal thing and Mount Rushmore, and you've done all these things. And instead, when I look back on the podcast, I was like, wow, this whole podcast was these two brilliant, wise women desperately trying to teach me some patience. You know, <laughs> like... That was the so for me, like a winning podcast is sometimes when I'm the fool during it. You know, like I'm ridiculous. And then afterwards, I'm like, oh, teaching moment. Yeah. Okay. You, you look a bit ridiculous, but the lesson is there. And those are some of my most precious podcasts. Overall, to answer your question about guests on the show, it's a lot of going with my intuition. It's easier when someone nominates someone else because then I feel like I get to choose them rather than someone asking and I feel like I'm saying no or yes. So sometimes someone will be like, ooh, have you heard of this person? You know, Sometimes I have some dream guests that I've been like trying to get on the show. It took me a long time to get Marion on the show. And then when we did do it, she really showed up. And I could tell she was taking a risk, being really vulnerable and trusting me. And part of how I create that trust is I give my guests final cut on the content. I say, like, we're going to do this conversation in total vulnerability, and then you get to decide what is released. There's no gotcha. It's just how much more vulnerable can we get in this journey together? Love that. Solid advice. Yeah, we are trying to figure this out. 
working on this all the time. And I hear you about uh, not wanting to say yes or no to people. I don't think anybody has ever nominated themselves for our Oh, wait a minute. You have. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you were going to bring that up. It was a trains going down the track at the same time. Kind it, was, of it, it, was hap- it was a happy moment to say yes. <laughs> well, okay. So in my defense, Andy and I have been talking about this podcast for a while. And I felt that, and you can tell me if this is how it was received. I felt that it was kind of offered in a sort of like, if this would be of service to you, considering this is something I've been doing for a while, we could do a thing. Would that help you? So I was trying not to do the like, can I please be on your show? But yeah. (laughs) Yeah, It really was. It was more like that. We started collaborating on, as we began to talk about a podcast, I reached out as a fan of, I don't remember who contacted who first, but we ended up collaborating on putting together a podcaster meetup on the playa last year and ended up just that Eamon has played a bit of a mentor for me as we've learned our way into this world and this became something that was obvious to do and would be a lot of fun. And so when it was time to release the Marion episode, it seemed like a good time to get together and, and catch up. So, yeah. Well, and let me say something about podcasting. Stuart, I'm so glad you called me out because that's good radio. I, I you know, I teed you. I didn't really want you to call me out, but I a little bit teed you up for it. And the fact that you called me out, like then we get that kind of bubbly it's a little more fun. And the audience is like, oh, no, he didn't. And I'm like, oh, I did do that. It's a little more effervescent. A little more effervescent. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think is ahead for festivals in general and Burning Man in particular? I know you don't have a crystal ball any more than I do, but are we going to have an event in 2021? And is it going to look different from what it looked like before? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. So the big focus of my episode with Marion was actually encouraging people to donate to the org. That was like the big point of why I wanted to do it at that time in this way, because I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what the chance is, but there is definitely a chance that the event doesn't happen next year. And Burning Man is three things. It's the global community. I'm like lecturing to you about Burning Man. I'm like burn splaining you. (laughs) It's the global culture. It's the event and it's the project. And the global culture is going to be fine. Like it's already the the cat's out of the bag. The Swedes are just going to keep doing it on the coast of Denmark the way they do. It's there. So it's fine. Burning Man as a culture will survive. It's already out in the world and giving this beautiful gift. The event and then especially the organization itself are what are at risk right now. I feel that it's really important for burners to step up and help out. What I said on the podcast with Marion is that if you have enough abundance that you're okay, then you're doing great. If you have enough abundance that you're okay and you've been able to donate to some of these causes, Black Lives Matter, frontline workers, you've been like able to help out and you still have abundance. And frankly, that's a lot of burners. If that's the case, then buy your Burning Man ticket. Just as if you'd gone to Burning Man this year, just buy your Burning Man ticket. And I actually got a message from someone today who said that he'd been gifted most of his Burning Man tickets, but he wanted to buy one today. First of all, it's going to be communal effort that that keeps us going. So I'm like, I'm definitely, I'm very pro donating the cost of your Burning Man ticket right now. That being said, Burning Man, the event could potentially 
change for the better in this time off. So Marion was talking about how y'all don't want to fire people because you're going to gut the organization, right? So there are people who need to, they need jobs, they have families, and they're talented, and they're not going to be producing an event, but they have time to tighten up so many things about the event. Another thing that's really meaningful is that we've got this 2030 sustainability roadmap, and that can be accelerated now because more people can be working on it and more innovation can happen. So I think that if the org has enough money to get through certainly to 2021 and possibly to 2022, then I think we're actually going to see a more dialed event and frankly, a greener event, which is, I think, one of the two most important things facing our culture right now. Yeah. I did a second interview with Christopher Breedlove, also about the future of Burning Man. Have you had him on the show? And yeah, we have. It? Oh, but but well, he's due to come back. Okay. He's a smarter man than I on these topics and a good friend. When I think of the future of Burning Man, I look to just the glorious innovation of the Burning Man community and people like Breedlove and others who I admire and what they're wanting. How do you get joy in what we've lost? What is the joyful yes that comes out of like the smoldering no of no event this year? No event. Okay, well, what's the yes? Yes, multiverse. Yes, innovation in a new way. Where's the yes? So that's the answer about the future of Burning Man. The future of festivals, I feel like is the same as, as I've felt for a number of years, which is a move towards more boutique, more community driven, more participatory, smaller events, hopefully less destination show off events. Although I've, I've done that too, where you're like, I'm on a beach and I'm partying. It'd be nice to have a little bit less of that, the showiness of that. But I, I like, um, there's a community called Desert Hearts. They're burners. They throw a small house and techno festival in Southern California, and they've built such a deep connected community. And so when COVID hit, they were actually able to move that online much more easily than something like Insomniac or Live Nation or one of these bigger events because they were such a tightly woven community. Right now, what we really want from festivals, what we've always wanted from festivals is community. And we need community now more than ever. I think that there's going to be some moves into the virtual and trying to create and connect with and experience community there. And then as things move on, it's not going to be like we get a vaccine and it's done. So it's going to be a slow ramp up. Maybe you can finally go to a hundred person event. You know, maybe there'll be, you know, a hundred people at Fly Ranch, smaller things, smaller kind of communities sort of building up. So that's what I see as, as the future of festivals and festival culture. Pretty good for a guy without a crystal ball. <laughs> I'm never going back to South by, please tell me I'm never going back to South by. Oh, I wonder how that will go. I wonder what stuff like South by will do. There's an example of a highly hyper commercialized festival where so many people are there to make connections and running on the corporate dollar. There's always going to be a market for that, right? For people to go and make sales connections. But yeah, and South by was on the Fest 300 list of the world's best festivals. And it's got some cool film festival energy to it. It's got some cool music stuff to it. But ultimately, it really is kind of like a conference kind of vibe. It's sort of hyper transactional in that way. And there's totally a place for that. But in terms of festivals, you know, it's a heavy lift to go to South by, well, maybe it's not a heavy lift, but you have to make it your, a festival yourself, you know, really. 
it actually, if you aren't going there for the conference portion of it, you know, experiencing it a couple of times as a local might where you don't, you get a badge so you can go see music and get into the parties. And it's like you describe the smaller communal scenes. I've made incredibly useful personal connections with people on creative pursuits at that event as well in those smaller spaces without ever having a conference badge and going to sit and listen to a single panelist. So there's something about the container that certain groups are able to present and say, come to our little meetup and these bands are going to play and really great connections happen. And I don't just mean standing there at the front of the stage, pumping your fist, but because you're kind of there to make connections, there's a little bit of a frisson that happens where it's like, okay, it is okay to ask what you do and like check your badge and say, I have always wanted to talk about AI or I've always wanted to talk about multi-user games or there's a games track and there's the music track and the film and education it's constructed to put you into those little smaller containers so that you, you can meet people in, in that vein. Now I realize that I want to take back what I said about South by and being somewhat disparaging because I went to Amsterdam dance event one year, which is a conference slash music festival in Amsterdam. And it was totally a magical festival. And it was kind of like, there was all this net networking. There was like speed dating networking in these hotel lobbies and it seemed like some kind of techno funeral because everybody's in black and like milling about outside these hotels and then doing these like really fast meetings. And that in itself was just so culturally interesting and rich. Everybody's doing these meetings, everybody's in black. And this cat, Marcus Barnes, who we ended up hiring for Fest 300, just kind of like slinks through the room blowing kisses at everybody. And I was just like, damn, man, that's how it's done. <laughs> so, you know it's what you it's what you make it life is a festival right you know if it's a festival hey. maybe you maybe you'd be able to walk through the room blowing kisses if you went by zap i don't want to be zap, zap. or flame and amen <laughs> flame and yeah flame and, flame and amen has better legs than zap i gotta say it's true after this <laughs> podcast comes out i'm definitely gonna have some burner friends like flame and amen and i'll be right back in seventh grade just quibbering <laughs> oh sorry for that no, we can, that's a cool we can edit that out if, if, if it bothers you. I've had enough transformational experiences. I believe I might have healed Flame and Amen. I think actually it doesn't hit the soft spot in the same way as it once did. Life is a festival. Life is a festival. All right. Well, on that note, God, Amen, thank you so much for showing up. I think we're about out of time. Why? Why are we out of time? See, this is why I have no time limit on mine because I get so into it and, and then I have to edit it a lot later and like sometimes it's clunky. Um, I was going to say, what, what did we not about? ask you about? Yeah, or what do you want to ask us about? I just want to keep talking. So how can, I, how can I bide some time while I think of something clever to ask you? <laughs> well, Stuart, you named the multiverse, right? Is that correct? Yeah, sorry. Okay, so I, yeah, my question for you is why did you ruin like literally the world? <laughs> I, why, why did you, some spell was cast where like you've put Burning Man in the multiverse. I'm pretty sure of it. And I hold you personally accountable. Not someone that I had to it, ask I him hold you accountable. It just, sounded like, ask him. it just sounded like fun at the time. I and mean, I actually wrote a whole nother theme for last year or for this year. I wrote it last year for this year. There's time again. That was totally not fun. It was more about our struggles to maintain our hold on the land out there and contests over what exactly meant home and the BLM and the environmental impact statement, all that. 
And I, I liked the way it was written, but it was just kind of boring. And I looked at it and it failed several of the critical tests for me of a good thing. What are the tests? Was, what are the critical tests? Well, it should reflect what's happening in the world, which it did hit, but it should be accessible to artists and inspirational for artists to be able to work from. And it should be accessible to the common burner in some way that they might be able to connect with it. And even if it's, you know, putting on a dumb Renaissance costume for the Da Vinci theme or whatever. Yeah, I just wanted something more fun. And, you know, multiverse is just so strange and surreal. And for me, it was really just sort of a launch pad for talking about surrealism and pataphysics, all the oddness of the world. And I just felt that was just a much bigger on-ramp for artists to be able to express the theme. And now here we are. Now everybody's blaming me for fucking up the fabric of reality. It's just a word, people. It's just a word. Great job. It turned out to be a big old on-ramp that we all have been pulled along. No, Um, it's more like a cloverleaf. It's a big spaghetti on-ramp going everywhere. I didn't want that. You know what you just said about themes, and I promise I'm not going to just keep trying to keep this interview going, but I do want to say this. I always felt like a theme needed to be something that someone could go crazy overboard on and just get the inspiration and could just go nuts. But it could also need to be something where if someone didn't feel that comfortable, they could do like a simple thing and still be a part of the whole. So I feel like theming things is a very specific art. I appreciate that you do that art. Well, thank you. And once again, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as long as you give us a theme for next year that'll take us back to the playa, you'll be forgiven. Yeah, theme that I wrote about going home hopefully will be the theme for next Burning Man event. It, it's no, it's you, sports. It's going to be sports. No, it's really, actually at this point, it's multiverse 3.0. Uh, no, no. 3.0 because don't ask me what happened to 2.0. It's it's in another multiverse. It's out there somewhere. Just not here. I want to go home next year. So please keep me in mind when you write the theme that I would like to go back to the Black Rock Desert because it's it's really special to me and I don't want it to be not here next year. So it's on you holding you personally accountable. As it is to all of us, yes. Thanks for that. And thanks for showing up today. I mean, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so I've much for being here. Yeah. yeah, this is really good. I love, I've listened to some of the episodes. I got to listen to, I think the first episode you did and I'm already starting to see like how you're growing, how your dynamic with each other is growing. It's fun on my end as a podcaster who pays attention to details about podcasting to kind of notice how you're passing the mic back and forth and kind of like how your chemistry is developing as hosts. So yeah, it's been a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you for all of your, uh, your love and support along the way. And that is a show. Thank you everybody for showing up. Be sure to check out Eamon's podcast, Life is a Festival. You can find it at his website, eamonarmstrong.com. Listen to his great interview with Marion. Lots of other burnery stuff. You can spend hours in there. It's a fabulous rabbit hole. Burning Man Live. <clears throat> Burning Man Live is a production of the Philosophical Center of Burning Man Project. Our web address is live.burningman.org. Our email is live at burningman.org. And you can follow us on all the socials as Burning Man Live. Our technical producer and story editor is the fabulous Michael Vav. Our producers are Andy Grace and Logan Mirto. And our sponsor spot this week was produced by Dr. Yes of Burn.life. Big thanks to our super friends Tanner Boger, Devin from the Internet, Freakball the Clown, and Jake Nizzle. And of course, thanks, Larry. 